0: Welcome to the Louis Talks podcast, where I do what I do best, chat to interesting and fascinating people. So this week, I'm absolutely delighted to have on a very old friend of mine, Sarah Ambrose. Now, Sarah and I actually met because many years ago, she asked me to go and speak at her kid's school. Now, I was trying to remember exactly when this was, but it was probably about at least seven or eight years ago that Sarah and I first met. Now, when we met, she was working in the corporate world, but had a real passion for neurological diversity due to her boys both suffering with a few challenges and a few advantages as well. So Sarah and I had some amazing conversations. We lost contact for a long time and then reconnected on LinkedIn. And I was absolutely thrilled to see what she was doing, her work in mental health and awareness around mental health first aiders. So mental health has been something that I have struggled on and off with throughout the years. I think a lot of people still don't realise that we all have mental health. It's the way that we are aware of how we're feeling and functioning on a day-to-day basis. So we all have mental health, but when we have a mental health challenge, until I think relatively recently, there wasn't an open place to discuss this in business. It's something that a lot of people talked about behind closed doors. I had a lot of business friends that we used to have long discussions about how sometimes the stress, the worry of business particularly owning your own and being an entrepreneur, can impact your mental health. I myself have suffered over the years with bouts of depression and anxiety, coupled with real stresses in the business. And so I've had to really learn over the years to try and master this through many different ways. Meditation, mindfulness practices, nutrition has been a massive part but ultimately having a bit more of a life philosophy to live by. So Sarah and I really delve into what mental health within business means, what's been happening over the last couple of years with companies giving people a platform to talk about mental health in a positive way and in a way that they can in the business and corporate world. We talk about some of the ways that people can be aware and we delve into lots of Sarah's work to do with mental health first aiders. So I really, really hope you enjoy this podcast. And as always, I love to hear from people. And if you've got any comments, questions, requests, please don't hesitate to send them over to me. We are all still within COVID-19, although I think now it seems that things are starting to go back to some semblance of normality. But I know from my own personal experience through COVID and that of lots of clients and friends, many of us have been finding mental health even more challenging through this period. So I felt like now was the perfect time to release this podcast with Sarah Hope you enjoy it, and um, yeah, please enjoy this interview. Morning, Sarah. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast this morning. Um, oh. I just want to jump sort of straight in, and mm-hmm. um, if you tell the listeners what it is that you do and okay. how you ended up doing it.
1: Okay. Um, so I'm a business psychologist, and I work as a mental health first aid instructor, and um, And uh, work in an advisory capacity with organisations around education and mental health from the Mental Health First Aid Platform and my experience of um, working with one of the network partners for National Mind, West Kent Mind. So I, several years ago, decided to have a change of career after having a long career in finance, uh, working in the City of London, to go back to university and study psychology, which I always had a passion and and went on to do my Master's in Business Psychology thinking that I'd go back to the city to work with people rather than with figures and and very quickly realised going back into that environment as a consultant that it was perhaps the environment that I needed to change uh, rather than the role and found myself working at West Kent Mind in Seven Oaks in Kent which I absolutely thoroughly loved and worked in business development for them so speaking to a lot of organizations and it was around that time that I trained as a mental health first aid instructor. It's robust and evidence-based program uh, that uh, I believe um, you know has its roots in education around mental health literacy for individuals and for organizations and it's a it's a fundamental piece of learning. So I sort of took up the mantle with that really and worked with organisations that wanted to make a change around their culture, uh, wanted to support their staff better but didn't really know where to start and my sort of opening gambit with all of the organisations was get your new leadership team or your board around a table and get this, this learning. Um, Less so to become a mental health first aider, but more so to gain skills, understanding and learning around mental health and mental illness, because I don't think uh, we get it. Uh, We certainly don't get it at school, although that's changing. And up until recently, it's not really been available in organisations either. So... For the two and a bit years that I was at West Kent Mind, I worked very closely with organisations. I did a lot of work in schools as well, but really wanted to make a difference um, in organisations. And we saw some amazing changes take place, really, um, from just embedding a different type of learning and understanding around mental health. And I guess I left... Uh, West Kent Mind, I still train for them. I still do speaking engagements for them, and are very closely affiliated with them as one of their associate trainers. But the network partners of National Mind are restricted geographically, and um, and I had a lot of clients and connections in London that were asking me for. Um, advice or support or training, and I couldn't do that while working for them, so I made the transition into sort of picking up the mantle with my own consultancy and um, and and doing that, which you know it's only been sixteen weeks, like I said to you earlier and and I love it actually you know it's an incredibly rewarding role, and I love watching the change in people when they um, get this education around what is mental health? Why are we talking about it? Why is it so important? And what is the difference between mental health and mental illness? Because I don't think people really understand that. So, yeah, I think that's me in a nutshell.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. It's it's really nice to hear because I think um, I... Uh, i've I've been aware through my own ups and downs over the years and and i think that i probably was always a bit of a delver into my own sort of personality and minds and quite inquiring so it's always been something in the back of my mind but it's really great over the last five years to see that you know mental health in the workplace is just growing and growing and there's so much more support there's so many more people talking about it and even uh, the last couple of days I was speaking at the Festival of Enterprise in Birmingham and I had so many conversations with people about mental health in the workplace mm-hmm. yeah. and it, it was great because I think there has been a bit of a stigma over the <laughs> years about talking uh, you know personally or in the workplace about mental health so I guess I'd just love to know your perspective on that. What, what do you think's caused this shift? Where, where mm-hmm. has this suddenly come from over the last sort of five plus years?
1: Well, I think that Well, lots of reasons, actually, but I think predominantly, and and National Mind will tell you that when Prince Harry spoke about his personal experience, um, they had the highest hit rate on on their uh, website ever. Um, So I think that the princes and, and what they've done through Heads Together has really raised general awareness around speaking about mental health and I think there's been a collective social movement that's just gathered um, and has gained momentum so much so that it can't be ignored by organisations and it's giving people permission at an individual level to say, you know, I've been affected by this or that's me and the more people that speak out, um, I think the more power that has with giving people permission and to talk about their own mental health. And I think organisations, there's some key organisations working in the UK that uh, have been working for many, many years that have, uh, because of this social movement, have become um, more available to the general public. And, you know, National Mind has done incredible work and has been around for decades. Um, And they have aligned themselves with other organisations like Mental Health First Aid England and a number of community interest companies Uh, that are doing phenomenal work about raising awareness, education, and pushing to get legislation changed, actually, which I think is really, really important. You know, we can talk about awareness and actions and speaking about it and organisations making changes, but it has to be followed by robust changes in our legislation because historically the health and safety executive has had nothing in its guidelines or legislation around what organizations need to do for mental health uh, or mental health support. You know, we have uh, physical first aid support and every organization, whether it's a sports club or a school or a financial institution, has to have a minimum of X amount of, of physical first aiders. And I think you know, what uh, some of these key organizations have done is raise the awareness to create this parity of esteem. You know, we have to treat mental illness the same as physical illness, so we have to have the education around it like we do around physical first aid, Um, And we have to understand why it's so important. So there's a number of reasons why I think it's on everybody's agenda, but it's gathered momentum now so much so that organisations can't ignore it. And actually the ones that are ignoring it, you know, are are either jumping on the bandwagon because their competitors are doing something about it, even if they're not invested in it. Um, They're doing something because uh, their competitors are, and actually realising the value in and making a difference to supporting their employees. Um, so there's lots of really, really good things happening at the moment. And um, so it's exciting to be a part of it.
0: Yeah, really. definitely. Yeah. And, and I think, as as you said, it's that permission point, you know, having permission in a workplace or openly. So there were, there were, I think, three or four presentations at the Festival of Enterprise that were specifically around mental health in the workplace. Yeah. So it, it just seems to be getting to that point where... People are becoming a lot more comfortable talking about it. There is that permission there. Uh, You know, I mean, I do see that there is a little bit of a disconnect. Certainly, I think, um, obviously, I live on the edge of Birmingham. Um, Birmingham's got a lot of growth and development. There's a lot of exciting things happening here. But I think sometimes in terms of, I don't want to call it a trend, but, you know, in in terms of sort of understanding and awareness, Birmingham does sometimes fall behind a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I do see that with quite a few of the Birmingham organisations that I've worked with over the last couple of years compared to what you might find in London or other cities. Mm. So I think that, you know, where you've got companies like Monzo and the like out there really sort of shouting about this stuff and saying this is something that is vital not only to, uh, you know, our health and wellness as, as a company, but actually... You know, turning it into a business way of looking at things—the ROI. You know, because yeah, you know, the happier the staff, the the you know, the more supported they feel, the less sick days they're having, and therefore, you know, efficiency goes up in a company. So you sort of, I think, look at it both ways. But but I guess this is a bit of a kind of facetious question. But um, if there's people out there that have heard about mental health, but they're still in that sort of transitionary phase of saying, well. You know, what does this actually mean for me as a company? Why should I really care? Above the obvious reasons we've just discussed, is there anything else that really sticks out at you that, um, you know, you think, you know, pointing companies towards will help them understand what what really this is all about?
1: Well, I think the key signpost that I would make for organisations is the review that Paul Farmer, who's the CEO of National Mind, and Lord Stevenson, who got together in a commission to write a review or a report on the state of uh, mental health and well-being in, in organisations in this country and, and that was commissioned in October 2017. And the Thriving at Work Report, I think it's a 70, 90 page document, um, and uh, Deloitte's were commissioned to um, help write that review. Uh, it's got some startling statistics in it about the state of where we are with uh, our uh, mental health support and the statistics around mental illness in the workplace. So any employer that's wanting to make a difference to their organisation and understand the foundation of that, that is, the, that is the starting point. You know, It sort of identifies that 300,000 individuals a, a year lose their job through to long-term poor mental health issues. Um, and the cost to the economy, which you mentioned, is in excess of hundred billion pounds, you know, and that 's the cost to the government, lost tax revenues, uh, increased services and benefits, the cost to the NHS and the cost to employers and I think it 's really important for organizations to look at the cost of making sure that uh, they 're investing uh, in their employees. You know we talk about the cost being somewhere between. Um, 34 and 42 billion pounds to the employers of this country. And the largest share of that uh, amount, around 21 billion pounds, is in lost productivity. Um, We talk a lot about presenteeism and there's a lot of um, how do you measure it and what is it. You know, people being at work but not feeling well you know, taking longer to do the things that they would normally do in five or ten minutes, and maybe it takes half an hour or an hour, working longer hours to get the same amount of work done and generally feeling uh, not right working. Um, and, And a £10 billion cost to employers on absenteeism, taking time off through poor mental health. And then, you know, over £3 billion we talk about in... Turnover, you know, uh, replacing staff that uh, leave work through poor mental health. So it's not a it's not something that can be ignored if we're talking about revenue and the bottom line. And the Thriving at Work report identifies return on investment, and they sort of talk about an average between 40p and nine pounds. Uh, so you invest one pound in, um, in mental health literacy and and um, supporting your staff around mental health and well-being and the return on that investment is over four pounds so that's quite a nice statistic if you're looking at your bottom line you invest in your assets and your assets will provide for you Um, but specifically around mental health well-being and support so I think the thriving at work report is is the baseline and the benchmark for organizations it talks about the six uh, core standards that organisations can develop and implement to make a difference to their employees um, and then they've got a, a forward advanced or enhanced core standards and it's not prescriptive, so it doesn't say you have to do this, this and this, organisations can adapt it it's more of a, a guideline really, um, but they know that it makes a difference, so you know, having a measurement standard. How do we measure where we're at? If we're going to make changes in how we support our staff, what are we going to benchmark that against? How are we going to evaluate it? So there has to be a measurement standard, um, understanding where your staff are and how they feel and what support is in place. Can they have open conversations about how they're feeling? Uh, And we know that the statistics really, uh, Mind uh, launched Mental Health at Work commitment last week actually. Um, based off the core standards in the Thriving at Work report. And they have got some statistics that they issued saying um, only 51% of employers employees feel comfortable to talk about their mental health in the workplace. And I'm pretty sure if we think about parity of esteem, people don't have a problem saying, oh, I've got the flu or I've got a cold or perhaps I've just been diagnosed with a physical illness or a physical health condition Uh, but people are very reticent to speak about uh, mental health you know and anxiety and depression are, are the most prevalent mental illnesses that we see in the workplace people don't want to talk about it so organizations have to implement ways to measure and evaluate that to create awareness through training and education and then support that with actions okay so we've done that we've done that you know we know how we're going to measure it Uh, we know how we're going to educate people around it and what are we going to do to support them? You know, So what does that look like in an organisation? Is it our EAP? Is it various wellbeing measures that we can implement um, over the mental health calendar in the workplace or uh, various interventions that we can make in a week? But I think for me the most positive changes that I've seen in organisations come from having a champion, so having a leader, that picks up the mantle and charges forward saying, you know, it's okay to talk and it's okay not to be okay. Um, It has to start from the top of an organisation because if it doesn't, you can do all of this stuff around here, but if it's not being driven by uh, a senior stakeholder or a board member, then it doesn't gather the momentum that it needs to. So, and I feel really strongly about that. You know, I, work with an organization, an international organization who've got over 50,000 staff and they're doing amazing things for their staff well-being, the programs they've got in place, the support that they're doing, the infrastructure they've got in place. But, you know, speaking to them a couple of weeks ago, they said, we just haven't, it's not cohesive, we haven't got traction and, and it doesn't feel like, you know, we're making progress and they weren't measuring it. So they didn't know what the tangible effects of all of the work that they were doing was, and they didn't have a champion at senior management level. They had lots of very key people in the organization uh, that were very passionate about it. And I said, you, you have that someone at board level. So a director that champions it, someone that says it's okay to speak about this. And then you cre- create sort of cohesion and a more collaborative approach. And organizations have to be accountable. They have to, Uh, show their results you know this is what we've done and this is the impact that we've made you know and we need to improve on that or you know and I think employees have to be a part of uh, the initiatives that change uh, or that organisations implement I think you know they have to have a voice so Yeah, I don't even know if I've answered your question, but once I sort of start, I can't stop. But, yeah, I think, you know, the Thriving at Work report, um, what National Mind have done with the uh, Mental Health at Work commitment following on from um, the core standards of that report, and the education component um, that Mental Health First Aid England bring, I think the connection between those three is a really brilliant starting place for organizations if they if they want to make a difference
0: yeah brilliant because i I think this there seems to be not only this at one of the forefronts of the change in company culture but i think that you're seeing actually a lot of company culture going through a real shift at the moment people are looking at staff as assets properly Mm -hmm. and they're looking at how they can create those really cohesive environments to work in, employee engagement, employee benefits. You know, there's all this sort of talk going on and and it's amazing. Mm. I think one of the only problems that I see, um, and we mentioned this briefly before we sort of came onto the podcast and wanted to pick it back up, is the white noise problem. Mm. So there's so much talk about mental health and there's so many people out there talking about it, which is only a good thing. Um, but I think what, what, what's your opinion on the sort of white noise problem that we've got that actually, maybe there are people talking about it that potentially shouldn't be, um, or it's yeah. about, you know, making sure that the information that's out there is, is really, I guess, being analyzed and, uh, understood and how that's actually impacting people out on the ground and in, in the companies.
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of individuals and perhaps charity organisations that have jumped on the bandwagon of, you know, we can do this for your organisation, we can do this for you individually, around mental health and wellbeing, and um, and I'm a bit nervous about that. I, you know, um, it has to be said. I think if you base your advice. Or your uh, opinion on concrete information, uh, statistics that have been collected in a robust and evidence-based manner, then I think that's okay. Um, You know, that's why I mention National Mind, uh, Mental Health at Work, the work that the uh, the, uh, Heads Together Foundation are doing. Um, and organisations that have actually put measurement standards and evaluation and and best practice in place and and can share their results with you. I think that's really important. The other side of, of that, which is lived experience, I think is equally critical to make people understand and learn about what it feels like to have a mental illness. Um, and how it impacts every every facet of your life. Um, I feel slightly nervous sometimes about advocates sharing their own um, lived experience in uh, forums that aren't safe. Sometimes delivering training and education around um, mental health from my experience as a mental health first aid instructor. it's really, really important that the people that you deliver to feel safe and that there's an agreement around safety and, um, because it can be really challenging for some people to receive this education and actually challenging from, from my perspective in delivering it sometimes, particularly when we're talking about subjects like suicide. So I think, I think it's, It's vastly unregulated from a lived experience perspective and it makes me feel a little bit nervous, but I think that that will change. I think there's a lot of talk about mental health first aiders in an organisation and what that role involves and um, how do we keep and protect and make sure that our mental health first aiders are safe. So there's a lot of conversation around that at the moment and I think that's very important. But, yeah, I think... I think it will change and I think it will evolve. I think there's two components to learning around uh, mental health and mental illness that are absolutely vital. So one is the robust evidence-based platform, which we get through um, organisations like MIND and and Mental Health First Aid uh, England, um, And then there's the lived experience component. So if the two can be brought together and delivered in a safe environment that's quite structured and supported, I think that that is what we need to do. But yeah, you know, I, you know, I was just reading a a forum um, before I spoke to you about someone saying, you know, um, just training people in mental health first aid is not enough, and I agree with that. But I think one of the things that um, that product and that uh, instruction and that education gives um, to a layman that's never had any experience with mental illness or doesn't understand the difference between mental health and mental illness, I think it's a really important piece of learning. Um, So perhaps not necessarily to go away and take the role of a mental health first data, but that learning is is critical in understanding what we're talking about and why it's important to talk about it and how we can remove stigma and discrimination and judgment. And I think, you know, talking about people that share their lived experience, that reduces stigma. It helps eliminate the discrimination and the judgment that, you know, is innate in all of us actually and is entrenched in society. So. Yeah, I think th- there's work to be done in making sure that um, it's structured um, and safe and supported. I think that's really important. And I think that's evolving. I don't think it's absolutely uh, that we've got that right just yet.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is it. You've, we've got to start somewhere. Yeah. The, you know, the understanding will be built over a period of time. But if, as you said, especially if somebody hasn't necessarily come across mental health or, you know, there's a huge amount of people. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm no expert in this field, but even from friends and companies that I've worked with, there's a huge amount of people out there who I think are suffering with mental health, but have no real understanding of it. So Mm -hmm. therefore, they don't, they're not aware of the situation that that they're in. And therefore, it can be quite difficult for them to get out of it. You know, and find yeah. that support because without the recognition of it you say, yeah. well, actually, maybe I am a bit depressed or maybe I am there's something else going on. Or um, I have got some trauma locked away or, you know, whatever that might be at, at lighter or deeper levels. It's very difficult to help them without that understanding. So I think that's yeah. that's the first thing, isn't it? Education, being more open, getting this information out there, making people feel more comfortable to say, mm-hmm actually i i think i do need some help which as humans i think we're bad at anyway it doesn't matter what industry you're in um it doesn't matter what you're doing asking for help is you know sort of messes with our pride uh, a lot of the time as humans and i think especially in the workplace when there is this pressure to be your best and perform at your highest and be invincible because that's what you think you need to be all the time 100 percent of the time Mm -hmm. otherwise you're going to lose your job or you're not going to get the promotion or you know whatever it might be um so i so i think that there is some real pressure around that and i guess that my my question really is is about diagnosis or about when somebody becomes aware of their mental health situation I think diagnosis is, uh, you know, a very important tool to not necessarily give somebody a label, but it it helps them understand and understand how they actually might, you know, move to, uh, fixing is completely the wrong word, but understanding it better, understanding their mind in a better way. Mm -hmm. But I also think the diagnosis can be not always a positive thing as well you know because if somebody's got a label a a bit like you know dyslexia or dyspraxia or whatever it's
1: interesting that you say that actually because when we talk about a diagnosis nine out of ten people that get a diagnosis of a mental illness are more comfortable with the diagnosis than they are with sharing it with somebody so that's where stigma and discrimination play a massive part actually getting a diagnosis can be the first step in feeling better okay so i know what's this diagnosis is and what can I do to feel better so perhaps it's talking therapies perhaps it's medication perhaps it's different types of support for that individual but it exists you know we you know the elephant in the room always when we talk around mental health is um, how under-resourced we are in this country and the support available and you know I think the underinvestment in in our mental health services over the last 50 years is catching up with us and the social movement is giving people permission to ask questions and talk about it and perhaps go to their GP and say, do you know what, I'm not feeling okay. What is this? And what support is available? Um, And I think we rely on our NHS um, too much because I think... In some situations, there's some fantastic organizations doing amazing work around supporting people um, with um, uh, various um, mental illnesses. However, in, in a critical, acute support, we are woefully under-resourced, and, and I always get, but when I needed immediate support, you know, I was told, or I had to wait, or it wasn't there, it wasn't available, Um, And that's a very, very real um, factor in supporting people with significant mental illness. But I think it's really important to make the distinction. You know, you're talking about mental health problems and, you know, the difference between mental health and mental illness is really, really important to underpin. I delivered training to a group of people this week and I asked them to explain to me what mental health meant to them. And I sort of went round the room and... One person said, well, it's how we think and how we feel. And every other person in the room said it's um, depression or it's anxiety or, uh, you know, they came up with diagnosis terminology. And I said to them, you know, that's where the problem in understanding and education comes from because we all have mental health. It's how we think and how we feel and how we behave. And we associate the word mental with negative connotations, and this is why talking about language is so, so important. You know, mental health can be robust and strong, and and it's fluid. It's not static. It evolves. It can change on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, and we all have it. You know, we don't have any health if we haven't got mental health. Our physical health and our mental health are one. They can't be separated. And I listened to a podcast with Simon Blake, uh, the CEO of... um, MHFA England, and Ruby Wax this week, which was absolutely fantastic. And she said, you know, we're in a onesie. You know, our mental health and our physical health is like looking at it in a onesie. It's one thing. And mental illness is something different. You know, becoming really, really unwell and requiring a medical intervention or support um, to support a diagnosis of an illness is something that's quite different to our mental health. Physical health and physical illness are different, you know, Um, and we talk about mental health like it's the illness and it isn't. And I think it's really important that we have to acknowledge that and understand that and and learn about um, mental health and it being on a continuum and that it's fluid and it's changeable and what impacts that. And, you know, what are the indicators for us that something might be changing or that we're not feeling okay? And, and at what point do we have a conversation and we ask for help or support? Um, and I think the learning around mental health gives people that awareness. Oh, I hadn't thought about it like that. You know, we do I do a lot of work talking about stress. You know, what is it? Massively overused, um, incredibly misunderstood and and the, the the physical or the biological impact of what stress does to us and how that changes how we think and feel and behave. And, you know, I often say to people, we have colleagues that ring in and say, you know, I can't come into work today. You know, I'm too stressed. And, and I'll ask them how that makes them feel. And they're like, well, you know, you're stressed and now I'm stressed and I've got your work to do and my work to do. And then I try to get them to think about it slightly differently. If the colleague was to ring in and say, you know, I'm not coming into work today because I am in distress, would that take a different shape for you? And they're like, "Mm, okay, well, maybe. So what would you do if someone said that? Well, I'd ask them if they were okay and if they needed any help and perhaps what could I do to help you out or you know, can you tell me what that feels like? Because I don't know. So it's an invitation for a conversation. So there's a lot, you know, I think um, there's a lot of learning that needs to take place for people to understand the difference between those two labels, if you like. And, uh, and you mentioned labeling with a diagnosis. And it's really interesting. Um, we don't do that with physical illness. We don't label people with their physical illness. We take their illness away from the person. The illness isn't the person. You may be diagnosed with cancer. You have cancer. You know, you are diagnosed with depression. You are the depressive. It's not right. You know, you have an illness. It has a name. It doesn't define who you are. It isn't you. And often I will say take the illness away from the person and, and, and treat the person. The illness can be treated but have a conversation with the person because that diagnosis doesn't define them. And I think that's really important when we're talking about mental illness. Um, And you also mentioned fixing. I think it's innate in all of us when someone says they're unwell, particularly people that we love and we care about. We want to make them better. We want to fix them. Oh, have you tried this or do this? With mental illness, it's very, very different. You know, that's why... The second intervention in mental health first aid is to have a conversation and to listen non-judgmentally because listening and talking makes a massive difference to people that are are struggling with their mental health or are unwell. But we all like to want to fix. You know, it's innate, you know, we're we're built to judge. We judge every minute of the day. Am I gonna cross the road? Is that car going too fast? No, it, you know, I'm gonna stay here because it's safer for me to do that. Uh, that's what we do Um, and supporting someone that's struggling with their mental health is not about fixing them. Have you tried this? Have you done that? Why haven't you? Um, It's about understanding what it feels like for them and being able to provide support and signpost and encourage professional support but being able to listen to what it feels like for them,
0: Um, huge support Definitely. And I think as well, you know, that there is uh, a sense of that sliding scale as well is that, you know, it's it's, it's a bit like with physical illness. There are often a, a good friend of mine, Phil Escott, says uh, most people miss the whispers until they become shouts. You know, and he's talking about a, a physical what? sense where mm-hmm. it might be. Uh, so he developed uh, psoriatic arthritis so bad that he was living on a sofa for two years. Now he's mountain biking and rock climbing and he's completely different. But, you know, he said, I had lots of whispers along the way you know, a knee would sort of blow up and inflame and an elbow would become very sore for a week or two. And he said, but I had them for years before. And I think mental health is is very similar to that, at least from my experience from the people around me, that mm-hmm. there are those whispers, there are those things that are going on that if yep. are just buried, not dealt with, pushed away, then you pile more stress on top of it. And, and eventually, you know, because of the way that you're you're struggling and you're under so much pressure... You know people do just break you know that that um that elasticity eventually disappears and so I think that that 's a really important thing for my factor i'd love to know your opinion on that, but yeah you know, I think it is really important to catch it catch it early as early as possible to really start yeah. to deal with this i mean i think i'm um i'm very lucky that my my partner's she 's actually studying a psychology degree at the moment um we've talked about it a huge amount. We're big fans of Gabo Mate, um, you know, and, and even that sense of childhood trauma. Well, it, well yep. if there's childhood trauma happening, again, catching it as early as physically possible in mm. childhood or the teen years or, you know, as early as possible can actually help that person for the rest of their life. But I think...
1: Well, I, I totally agree with you. And, and you know, adoles- adolescent mental health and, and mental illness in this country is a whole different um, conversation and, you know, we know some of the statistics around that and, um, you know, 50% of of adult mental illness is in place before the age of 14 and 75% of that before the age of 18. So there's a big connection with um, early childhood experiences and particularly, like you mentioned, adverse childhood experiences. We call them ACE scores, actually. There's a lot of work that started to be done in this country um, and a lot of, of excellent work that's been done in the States around ACE scores. And there is a correlation to adverse childhood experiences and poor physical and mental health in adolescence and adulthood. The higher your ACE score, the higher you are likely to, um, in adolescence and adulthood, uh, be diagnosed with depression or, or have suicidal thoughts and behaviors. So there is an absolute correlation. But again, I think all of that comes back to education. We don't learn about what the signs and symptoms are of poor mental health. There's a lot of work being done in the media and in the press and some of our uh, the country's soaps are, are working in partnership with organisations like National Mind to be very careful and considered in their storylines and getting that education out there. Um, and I think that that's absolutely important. And it's fundamental, but we don't see um, TV adverts about what are the signs and symptoms of someone that we, you know, might really be struggling with depression or an anxiety disorder. We see a lot of TV advertising around physical conditions, so a stroke or diabetes or um, cancer. I mean, the advertising around cancer is phenomenal. And yet we look at the statistics around mental illness in this country and one in four people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in in any given year. So we're talking about 25% of our population. And those are just the people that have been able to go to the doctor and say, actually, I'm not okay. What's going on? Uh, So I think that those statistics are, are likely to be... Far greater, but i I feel quite passionately that we need to have more understanding and more um, of an open platform through our media about what to look out for. so education for ourselves and for the people that we care about and that we love and the people that we work with. what should I be um, aware of? you know what are the signs and symptoms of someone that might be um, mildly or moderately? depressed you know and that's not giving you the skills to diagnose be a social worker a clinician a doctor or anything like that but just to be mindful of what that might be you know I think um, there's that ad on television at the moment about how to diagnose a stroke so you know it's the face and the speech and the arm and and time I think it's fast or, or something along those lines. Where do we have that when we're looking at anxiety disorders, obsessive compulsive disorders, panic disorders? How do we recognize if that person's, we have a gut feeling and intuition that that person's not okay and they're presenting in a certain way? We don't know if that's linked to anxiety or depression because we're not educated about it and i think there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done around general education and 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 signs and symptoms of of mental illness and i you know i sort of use the statistics around suicide to highlight that you know the three and a half times more people die by suicide in this country than they do on our roads and look at the amount of advertising that we have around road safety campaigns. Where do we see anywhere near that level of advertising around if you're worried about somebody, these might be some of the signs and symptoms, you know. And I always find when I teach around suicide awareness and prevention that there's every every course people say i wish i had learned that i wish i had known that where would i find this information so i think there's well, there's still a, a significant amount of work to be done but um i would like to see an investment in in that in our in our media and public forums for sure
0: Yes, yeah, so i guess uh, i mean straight away um are there anything any sort of not necessarily quick tips but is there anything you can give away on the sort of podcast that if there's anyone listening out there you know some of those signs that they might be able to spot in sort of friends or colleagues
1: well i think in the in in the workplace well just in general you know if we're looking at um depression or anxiety we we will always say look for a change in behavior that's the first thing a change in behavior a change to how they were last week or, or the week before or the day before. You know, people that are feeling unwell might isolate, might not communicate as well. Their social interactions might be interrupted. They might not be able to recall information or articulate themselves well or not engage in a conversation perhaps how they used to. Their diet might be affected. Their sleep might be affected. Their appearance might be affected They may be acting slightly differently to how they would. Any change is sort of what I would say is an invitation for a conversation, you know. Notice that you haven't been yourself and I just wanted to have a conversation and understand how you're feeling or, you know, go for a walk or grab a coffee or invest some time and and have that conversation. So, yeah, changes in behaviour, I think, uh, are key. And in the workplace, we talk about... People coming in earlier or staying later, um, taking longer to get the work done, and, and and interestingly, people that are taking on more and more work. I can do this. I can do that. Um, you know, manic phases of behaviour, thinking, oh well, I can do all of this, so I'm going to do it. And you know, when we're sort of at capacity or we're not feeling well, it's very our, our mind works very differently. It's hard to store information. It's hard to learn. It's hard to sequence information, it's hard to articulate our thoughts, takes us longer to have a conversation or to talk about how we're thinking or how we're feeling, perhaps we can't hold on to information, Uh, so, you know, here's three things I need you to get done by 10 o'clock this morning and you've already lost, you know, you remember the first one and you don't recall the second two, you know. sluggish and 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 perhaps you know more tired and and isolating behavior and not really wanting to participate you know there's a there's a number of of ways that we can identify if people are are not feeling okay and then it's about how do we engage with them how do we have that conversation to understand what's going on for them which is the next part and and really important
0: yeah definitely and i i think there's for me, there's a real role between the person and the company as well. I think when people are working in organisations, there's a huge amount of responsibility, like you said, that is is to be played by the organisation. But I also yeah. think that there's a personal responsibility as well. And and I think, I mean, obviously, I've I've been really interested in personal development for a long, long time. Um, and to me, that has changed over the years. Thankfully what I see is kind of dying off is this hustle and grind stuff, which yeah. was around when I was a young entrepreneur to start with. It was all getting up at 4am, grinding through doing 16 hour days, getting no sleep, living off caffeine. And I did that for a long time and suffered greatly for it, both physically and mentally. Um, yeah. but, but I think that, you know, there is There is now so many great resources out there for people to look into and personal development, I think, has changed a huge amount. And I think much like in general with consumer um, behaviour and when we look at what's happening in the world at the moment, a lot of societal change is being led by consumers as well. So I think it's, it's sort of, I see it as a two-way role is people within organisations that are recognising that this is something, we've got to sort of get on board with it, start talking about it more within companies, within organisations, any opportunity we can to push, as you said, because sometimes a company will do it just because a competitor's doing it. That's not to say that it's necessarily a bad thing. It's just no. actually, that's sort of good, you know, and, and I look at it in the way that there's a lot of sustainable companies out there at the moment that are setting up because it's a trendy thing to be sustainable now. Mm -hmm. Um, And you could argue and say, well, some of them aren't really doing it for the right reasons, but at least they're doing something. You know, uh, at least there is a shift happening, however slow with some organisations that people are thinking more about what impacts that we're having on the world. And, And I think this is really it for mental health as well is for us all to take up a little bit of that responsibility, spread the message a little bit more, and as you said, educate ourselves on it um, in in whatever way we can and then hopefully push that into organisations that we work for or work with.
1: Yeah, self-awareness is is part of personal and professional development, I believe anyway, and particularly around um, mental health and literacy around understanding mental health, you know, a couple of components of of the education that I deliver is about understanding your own frame of reference, where your judgment lies, where your perception, uh, where your attitudes, where have they been developed, you know, and challenging them and actually in supporting somebody that might be struggling with their mental health or might be unwell with a, a, a diagnosable mental illness. Parking your own frame of judgment. Now, you have to have an awareness before you can do that. So, and I think, you know, I see so many people have light bulb moments with that. Gosh, you know, thinking about, and we go through a whole list of sort of items, really. So age and gender and education and disability, um, family situation, culture, religion, all of that. And I think if we sort of look at all of those different items we can think how what our opinion is on that and then how we express that opinion when we meet other people and how that is converted into our judgment when we meet new people and when we're talking about mental health to to be able to have a conversation without judgment we have to be aware of our own frame of reference our own belief system. And I think that's a really important part of of personal development. Where does that come from? Are you able to park it when you're having a conversation? You know, Brene Brown did this absolutely amazing uh, two minute video clip and she talks about the difference between empathy and sympathy and how You know, as human beings, we just want to fix the situation if someone presents a problem to us. Well, have you thought about this? Or, you know, and she gives a great example in in the video. You know, my son's failing at school. Well, at least your daughter's doing well. Or I'm getting divorced. Well, at least you've been married, you know. And no empathy or no empathic conversation starts with at least or but. And it's a really brilliant depiction of... You know, and we all do it. We all have those conversations where, well, you know, at least or what have you got to feel uh, sad about when you've got all of these things? It's parking that judgment and being aware of what we impose on other people, hugely important. And I think that sometimes people have to be told that, you know, can't have a conversation like this. How does it feel when you're Sitting, having a conversation with someone, and they're tapping away on their keyboard. Do you feel that you're heard? Do you feel that you're listened to? Do you feel that they're engaging with you? And no is the answer to that. So how can we engage with somebody? And we have to be self aware to be able to do that. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: So, yeah, and that you know, that's the connection with personal and professional development. And I think that's a, a key change that organisations have to make in their culture about parking judgment putting yourself in someone else's shoes, not assuming that you know what it feels like. You know, I have so many business leaders that say, oh, yeah, you know, they were diagnosed with this, but they're fine now. You know, how do you know that they're fine? You know, oh, well, you know, they're in at work every day and they're they're doing what they're doing. Have you asked them? Have you had that conversation? How do you know? You're making an assumption. Never make an assumption based off your own perspective because... You don't know <laughs> and, <laughs> until you ask. So, yeah, I think I think you're right. Personal development, self-awareness, understanding your own frame of reference is really important and, and being able to make a difference.
0: Yeah, sure. And, and I think, you know, ultimately, whatever it is, having the support and having people to talk to, and, you know, sometimes that's all it is, being able to genuinely, openly talk to people. I think I'm, uh, you know, incredibly lucky that I've got, a very open group of friends who are all very um emotionally aware you know and I've got another friend who's a psychotherapist and so we all sit around having these big conversations and talk incredibly openly and I know I'm very sort of lucky and unique probably to have that so I think that having that space to do so is so important but Mm -hmm. it is it is your discovery you know if if you're going to figure out a way and, and I say that you know, mindset and personal development is a bit like a Rubik's cube. We've all got our own unique one that uh-huh. we're not necessarily trying to fix, not necessarily trying to solve, but I think it's about finding the clues. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. And um, helping us to figure out more of our own maps. You know, how do I work best? What's the best way for me to to do what I need to do? It's, it's mm-hmm. finding these are the rules of our own game if you like and you
1: being know. okay with that
0: yeah yeah and and i think that's it you know having somebody as you say just sort of offer you lots of suggestions that may have worked for them might not work for you you know for me i at least think you know i had uh, you know a lot of issues with depression over the years and and just burning the candle at both ends um did that to me for a long time what got me out of it and and still does when i'm having a bad day is gratitude Mm-hmm. Um, and that works for me works really well but might not work for somebody else so I think as you say it's just you've you know we've all got to find that but we at yeah. least need the education and the understanding and a place to share that with other people who are not being judgmental um, and who are treating us empathetically.
1: Mm. I, I I look at my sons who are almost 20 and their friendship circles, and um, and who they're connecting with, and the conversations that they have around mental health today, which certainly wasn't what I experienced at their age. And I think that the change in our social environment and the awareness and the education around it is something that they are growing up with, which I think is absolutely fantastic. Friends and their larger groups at the, at the, the various uh, places that they're studying at the moment have had various issues with their mental health, and it's just completely destigmatized. It's like, okay, they, you know, they're not okay today. We're just going to check in and see how they are, or we're just going to be with them, or, you know. Um, Someone's had a spell a, a, a hospital stay through really poor mental health and that's okay. It doesn't define who the person is and, and uh, it's not them. they're just done well and, and you know they will recover and there is hope and, and recovery is very real. And I just think that our younger population are evolving very, very differently to certainly my age group and above. Um, because it was not part of what we grew up with. And I'd like to think that in 20, 30, 40 years from now, the landscape around um, understanding and support for uh, mental illness and um, people struggling with their mental health is completely different to what it is today. You know, I think this country has been entrenched in a blame and shame around mental illness, you know, it wasn't until, you know, 1961 the law changed around suicide being a crime. You know, if you were to, and think about the language if we talk about if you, um, a successful suicide ended in death, unsuccessful attempt on your life meant that you survived and those two words just don't you know success equal death and unsuccessful meant that you were alive and and that's how we talk about and we talk about committing suicide like it's a crime we don't talk about physical illness as in committing we never use that word when we talk about uh, physical illness and I think that there's it's entrenched in our society you know if you were to end your life through suicide pre-1961. You know, your family members could have been prosecuted. If you were unsuccessful and survived, you could have been prosecuted and ended up in prison, you know. And we associate that with a crime. I think that's still part of the thinking. It's entrenched in society. Mental illness is something you have done. It's your fault. You're to blame. There's shame around it. You know, there shouldn't be. Um, no one asks for a diagnosis of a mental illness. You no know, one puts their hand up and says, you know, I'll take that. Thank you very much. So I think there's still vast amounts of learning that needs to take place to change that mindset and change the thinking around mental illness. It's You know, suicide is still a crime in many, many countries around the world. And I think mental illness is, you know, we associate or it has been associated with something that you have done to yourself or something that you you know you've done wrong and i think that still exists in society and that really needs to it is changing and you know i work with a, a ton of people that just would laugh about that because that's not how they think but to the layman without any learning or education that type of Entrenched attitude still exists in in our society, and that's what we really have to change.
0: Yeah, Um, absolutely. That
1: that creates the the discrimination. You know, I do, we do in Mental Health First Aid, we do an activity around language, you know, positive, neutral, acceptable words that we associate with mental illness, um, and then negative unkind, unacceptable, un words that we associate and I can tell you in every single time I've done that activity The negative words just fly out of people's mouths and they, you know, some people can't think of a single positive word or phrase uh, when we talk about mental illness and you know, that's where Education is fundamental. I think.
0: Yeah, definitely. And and I think you see this as well in the sort of neurological diversity world as well, you know, that, that actually there's an awful lot of people within that sort of community that suffer with mental health. There's still a lot of social stigma. You know, I've got sort of friends who've had children diagnosed with autism and immediately it's sort of a negative thing. You can see straight away they're concerned, mm-hmm. they're worried, they're frustrated, so, oh my God, my child's had this terrible diagnosis. I don't know what it means. There's all this fear. And so I think you you see that and obviously then that transpires to well over sort of 55% of the prison population we know are neurologically diverse. It's probably a lot higher than that. Um, A lot of the times they're just not getting diagnosed. So we don't even really know the extent of that. And then, you know, I think if you look at Gabor Mate's work with addiction, that's another thing that society sees as this really negative thing that it's addiction is the person's fault. You know, it's their fault. It's, it's their choice. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. and um they chose to be a drug addict and now they're living on the street. And, and well, it's their choice. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, my, my partner has done a lot of work with the homeless in Birmingham over the last few years. And it's yeah, you can really see it. there is this real social stigma. And I I know that that is. At the extreme end of the spectrum, let's say, yeah. because, you know, a lot of these guys have been incredibly traumatized in early childhood or they've got, uh, you know, mental illness from birth, sometimes extreme levels of autism, and they just don't understand the world. They haven't been given the support. So there's, there's all of that sort of on the extreme end. But as you mm-hmm. say, it, it does show us actually, we still have got this huge social stigma around it. And if yeah. And if we're looking at people that are genuinely in need of huge amounts of help support assistance to just function in -hmm. our world um then it's all the you know the the micro the macro to the micro Mm. you know it's our friends and family who are struggling and as you said having the understanding to say well it's okay we all struggle Mm. um and i think as soon as we get more of that platform i hope that we'll start to look at all elements of that spectrum yeah in in the right way i mean i I had a chat yesterday to a guy who owned a company and um i i think i know what to look for now with neurological diversity Mm -hmm. um i could tell straight away he'd he'd sort of um got adhd or some you know he's sort of like super energetic and flitting around his stand Mm -hmm. and we had this great conversation and you know he just said to me he's like oh you understand that's so nice to have a conversation with somebody that gets what it's like to feel like that that your brain mm-hmm. is just overloading and you don't know what to do and there's so mm-hmm. many things going on so um yes yeah, it's, it's it's very interesting and i think that this is hopefully opening a door to a much wider understanding of, of the people around us um a, a friend of mine joe trodden He's a business coach and, and he says he believes that we have all the answers to solve all of our problems. But the problem is we don't understand ourselves and therefore, by definition, we don't understand each other. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's really true. It's a really n- interesting way of putting it that actually we could work so much more cohesively as a society if we understood ourselves and therefore other people more and and on a deeper level think what we could accomplish if we could work with all of our colleagues and all of our partners Mm. you know in in a more cohesive way
1: well you and I have had this conversation over the years around the education system and you know this is how we teach children and they will learn like this you know without there being an adaptation or an understanding about how they need to learn and not every child learns in the same way Not every person works in the same way. Not every person thinks in the same way. And we have such a prescriptive attitude towards education in this country. It has to be this way. And that's not just in our schools. That's in our organizations. We work in this industry sector. This is what you do. You know, financial services is, you know, it is what it is. And we work in construction and this is how it is and entrenched prescriptive ways of dealing with things uh, are not about the individual. And they're not working anymore, you know? And this is why this whole e- the evolution of understanding and awareness around the continuum of our mental health and the link with our physical health and and understanding the person. And you know, like we said before, you only ever really do that if you ask the question, What? tell me what that feels like for you. I want to understand what it feels like for you. I want to understand it from your perspective. And we don't do that. And fortunately, it's changing, you know. That has now become the narrative. I want to understand what it's like for you. There's still some industry sectors and we won't even go there on education with our experience of learning challenges and education with, you know, but it is changing. It has to change. It has to change because those company cultures uh, that are stuck and uh, are not adapting will fail, will absolutely fail. Um, and now there's such an imperative, an impetus on measurement and evaluation of how people are actually doing. Organizations are going to have to become accountable for that. And result-based evaluation and, and measurement will tell us how well your people are doing. So we will start to have more evidence and more robust, tangible uh, reporting around how we're looking after our assets, if you like, or how we're engaging or looking after our people. And I would love that to fall into the education system, but five and six and seven year olds don't have the same voice as we do as adults or in an organizational context. So we have to rely on our educators and and educating them and and, uh, yeah. education's
0: a whole nother story yeah absolutely agree I think like you said at at least you feel like there's a shift happening and and I think that if we can all pick up the baton even in just a very small way um, and start to lead this and talk about it more I hope that it will cause the ripples and as you say I think the education system is is a huge one Um, but you know it's an oil tanker yeah exactly you know and it's going to take a, a while to to start to really shift i just want to pick up quickly because you mentioned um there very briefly about physical health because mm-hmm. i think that that's something that i've really noticed and i've seen a lot of research coming out about um i found it sometimes harder to talk to people about it because i think that we i think as a society don't necessarily understand the connection between physical health or diet or you know if you look at a lot of the research around the gut microbiome and what's happening there chemically biochemically that actually interacts with the way our brain works the way we formulate hormones oh. so i'd i'd be quite interested on on your perspective on that as well you know how do you think we can have more of a conversation around you know physical health diet exercise and it's linked to to mental health and and what do you think the impacts are
1: Oh, huge. You know, the Maudsley Hospital talks about the five ways of well-being or six ways of well-being, you know, um, and some of those in there are, uh, you talked about gratitude giving and connecting with people and being active and activity. You know, there's scientific evidence to support looking after ourselves um, uh, through activity and eating the right food supports our mental health. Uh, and we know it supports our physical health. But, you know, it's interesting that people don't tend to make that connection between mental health and physical health, I don't think. And one of the um, activities that we used to do in schools, and actually I do it with organisations now, is, you know, I'll ask people to say, you know, who thinks that they have mental health? And and people will say, well, what are you asking? Are we um well or are we well? And I'm like, no, have you got mental health? Of course, we all have mental health. And then I'll ask them who has physical health and they'll say, Yeah, well, well, we've all got physical health to some degree. They don't look at mental health the same. And then I'll ask, well, how many of you have felt that feeling of butterflies in your tummy? Physical manifestation of something that is going on up here. Our body engages with, you know, the fight or flight that we talk about, the stress response where, you know, the, the fear center in our brain is activated. Our body engages us for action. It gets us ready to run away from whatever it is that's presenting us with this this fear, whether it's tangible or intangible or, um, you know, uh, and our body goes through a physiological change. You know, our heart starts to beat faster. We pump more blood around our body. We may feel like we have a dry mouth or sweaty palms, we may feel nauseous, we may need to go to the bathroom. Our body is gearing us to become lighter, to to move quicker, to get away from whatever it is. So there's an absolute connection between what's going on up here and what's going on down here. And we know that you know, when we release cortisol and adrenaline, it does things to us, to gear us for that action. And a little bit of that is good. But if it's continuous and perpetual, it can make us, you know, really unwell. Too much cortisol production um, inf- impacts our organs. You know, our liver may produce too much glucose, um, thickening of our arteries and our and our heart. You know, it inf- impacts our inflammation markers. Too much of that over a long period of time, we become less able to cope with that response or that stress response or whatever it is that triggers that fight or flight. Um, so the connection between the two is, Tangible, and we can support that. And it's different for everybody, like you say, you know, diet and activities, sleep and uh, connecting with people. There's lots of ways that we can do to support that or mitigate that rising feeling. But I don't think it can be ignored. And I think, you know, we, I think if you asked everybody what, you know, when you're feeling unwell physically or mentally, or when you're not feeling right, what can you do to make yourself feel better? And everyone's got an answer. It's different for everybody, but everybody's got an answer. You know, I need to speak to somebody. I can connect with a friend. Um, I go for a run or I go to the gym or I just walk. Out, I go for a walk outside. I read a book. Um, I have a hot bath. You know, there's a whole realm of things that we can do. But there is statistical evidence to support, you know, a balanced, good diet and good nutrition and activity. Um, mitigate some of those biological or physiological the impact of of stress Uh, and I think it's really important to educate our young people about that too you know really really important and adults you know what part of working with people is to sort of you know give them a bit of homework and say actually I want you to go away and do something to look after yourself just for half an hour an hour doesn't need to involve anybody else, just for yourself. But we're too busy. People are too busy. Oh, well, I'll get round to that, or I don't need to do that. You know, we we often say, and this is something West Kent Mind talk about all the time. You can't pour from an empty cup. You know, your relationships are impacted, your work is impacted, your physical health is impacted. Um, so you have to keep that cup balanced. When it overflows you can snap emotionally snap so we have to work out what it is that we need to do to keep our cup balanced yeah really important and I think you know uh learning and uh, education around diet and nutrition is fundamental and we get it but it's always linked to our physical health and it's nice to see more evidence and studies coming out talking about how uh you know you mentioned hormones and the link to hormones and um and, and poor mental
0: health yeah yeah definitely I mean I, th- I think you know in, in a simplistic way you know I, I say to a lot of audiences you know what makes us happy well it's a mixture of serotonin dopamine and oxytocin and all of those hormones are built by what we eat so it, you know in, in, in a simple way you're saying well it's it's really clear that it has an effect as you said I don't think that has been made so apparent in our understanding of mental health and its impact I think a lot of people have heard of the placebo effect and, um, you know, just even spending a short amount of time researching how powerful the placebo effect can be yeah. um, and, and its effect on a biochemistry. Um, you know, you look at guys like Wim Hof, I um, don't know whether you've heard of him, but no, the the Iceman. So um, maybe have a look into him after the podcast. I was very lucky to do a course with him a few years ago, and he holds all of the world records of cold exposure. So okay. he can be submerged in about sixty kilos of ice for up to two hours, and his body temperature doesn't change. You know, it's all about <laughs> mindset, and he has wow. proven he um, he teaches people by the way of his techniques on how to actually regain more control of the autonomic nervous system, which until really him and, and his sort of studies on him and his body was just thought that we could not have any direct influence, but he can upregulate down, regulate his hormones, his immune system and teaches others to do so. Wow. So I think that that, again, Fascinating. that definitely yeah, apologize. you know, yeah. it it really shows you how powerful that link between the mind and the body are. And again, um the nocebo effect that's another very interesting one that a lot of people don't talk about you know placebo is mm. you have something you think it's going to do you good and therefore it happens um the nocebo is the opposite so a lot of people are actually given therapy but or you know pharmaceuticals or whatever it might be but because they're so convinced that it's just not going to work then it doesn't mm. that's that's quite sort of interesting um and i guess i just want to throw one more thing out which i think and it's um i found it incredibly effective for me um is um, making sure you've got a good light diet um and, and you know by that i mean sort of sunlight. sunlight we are yeah we're linked to our circadian rhythms in every single biochemical component of our body and um all of our technology in it and it i think it's a big issue particularly for young people All of our technology emits blue light. You know, blue light as a spectrum releases cortisol. It's supposed to wake us up in the mornings, but we're staring at it all day, every day. Um, Suppresses
1: melatonin production, which is the hormone we need to sleep. You know, so yeah, I I totally agree. But, you know, seasonal affective disorder is is a diagnosable illness. You know, vitamin D deficiencies that we get from spending time in direct sunlight, we need that to survive. Vitamin D is something that... Is produced from sunlight uh, exposure to our skin and we need that you know when you think about the the climate and the weather in this country and how many people go undiagnosed and have the sluggish feelings uh you know of of mild to moderate depression um because of vitamin d deficiency you know
0: yeah very true (laughs)
1: People don't perhaps know about that. No, maybe no, no, you know?
0: no, exactly, and and I think you know, as well, it's that, important. Yeah, definitely the the blue light side of things. I mean, I think it's starting to get out there. There's simple things I think you can use like blue blocking glasses, or there's a tool called Iris, which is great, which I recommend to a lot of people. You can um, up or down scale your sort of blue light on your technology, on your phones and, and laptops and that sort of thing. But yes, yeah, there's this whole spectrum of of things I think to understand. Um, mm. But yeah, good. It's good that we get the a platform to talk about and it.
1: You, and you think about our, our young population who all have mobile phones now. You know, from early ages, children are on iPads and, you know, kids as young we see in schools all the time, as young as five years old bringing mobile phones into school. And, you know, I'll always say to children that I speak to, how many of you have your phones in your bedroom overnight? And, you know, they'll all put their hands up and, well, not all, most. And how many of you, if you have your phone in your bedroom overnight, wake up in the middle of the night look at your phone. All of them will put their hand up. You know, it's interrupting our normal rhythms and that production of melatonin. Um, There's a a great organisation locally called the Digital Sunset Challenge, which challenges families, parents and children to put their phone down from, say, 7 at night till 7 in the morning. It's agreement that parents have with their children. The parents have to do it as well as children and interesting results. But they did a great video Um, which I I really uh, rated, you know, they had young people talking about phone use at night time and their minds not switching off, you know, and there was a guy saying, you know, would you leave your front door open at the middle of the night and let people walk in off the street and stand at the end of your children's bed to engage in a conversation with them because that's effectively what you're doing if you let them have their mobile phones overnight, so... Yeah, a lot of interesting work being done about that, but I completely agree with you. I think we need to be much more aware of uh, the blue light and the influence on our uh, physical and mental health.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, well, I I guess any anything as a and I ask everyone this sort of question. um, So if anyone's sort of interested in this subject, have you got any podcasts or books or anything that you'd recommend that have made a real impact to you or your understanding?
1: oh loads i don't know where to start i think signposting to the organizations that i believe are doing the right thing and the best work national mind is one of them mental health at work and the mental health at work commitment mental health first aid england and there's a lot of industry specific work being done around and i mean there's a whole realm of of organizations uh, producing fantastic information. Some of the books that I've read, um, A Stranger on the Bridge, Johnny Benjamin, who talks about his journey through mental illness and recovery and, and his own um, attempt on his own life. It's a, it's a, a brilliant story uh, it's, and it's a wonderful story about recovery and the journey with mental illness. And also to um, Bella Mackey, who's written a fantastic book called Jog On about living with anxiety. And it's evidence-based and it's research-based. And uh, she talks about her own experience with living with anxiety and what's worked for her. And it's a great signposting book and it's peppered with humor. And uh, she very articulately depicts her journey, living with anxiety. And that's a fantastic read, I think. Oh, I could, yeah, I could go on, but those spring to mind at the moment. And and signposting to some fantastic organisations out there, you know, the, uh, Beat Eating Disorders in, in the UK. They have amazing resources for friends and family and people that are supporting people with uh, eating disorders and OCD and anxiety. UK. There's, a, I mean, there's. I think we sort of stop at the GP or the NHS or, or our medical you know, the next path where we go in primary care. But I think we need to understand that there's so many organisations out there doing wonderful things to provide information and support to people that are struggling or people that are caring for people that are struggling. And you can have access to that and signposting through MHFA and through National Mind. So look for it and ask the questions. And if you don't get the right answer in the first instance, try something different, don't stop, because there will be somebody that can provide you with information and support and, and guide you or signpost you to the right support. Um, and there's some fantastic collective agencies doing brilliant stuff out there. And I think, you know, uh, the network partners of National Mind, you know, I know our, our uh, local office, West Kent Mind and, and Seven Sevenoaks um, have affordable counselling services, uh, where I think in the first four months of this year, they had over 900 appointments. And, and run support groups for for members of the local community and have trained staff on hand it's not a crisis center but they you know they have a duty care system and provide resources and support and education for everyone in the local community so there's a lot out there that perhaps people don't know about so ask the questions um, and, and, and investigate what services are available to you in your local areas I think would be my
0: Pop and <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on, Sarah. That's been been a really good conversation. Yeah, um, Probably could have gone on for another two hours. I think it, <laughs> it is, <laughs> yeah. you know, it it is such a big subject. And I think, like you said, sometimes it is just about going out there and finding the information and, and us all taking up a little bit that button to to help us ourselves understand ourselves a little bit better. And mm-hmm. then, you know, the people around us and have that empathy and understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, thank you so much for coming on and having a having a chat with me.
1: Brilliant, you're welcome. Nice to speak no, to you.
0: Well, yeah, cheers. Thank you. Okay, see you
1: later. Bye.